This is White Ash Flies with Colin Mahoney, and today we're offering episode one of Lincoln Letters, the selected letters of Abraham Lincoln as compiled in Abraham Lincoln, Speeches and Writings, 1859 to 1865. Please follow White Ash Flies on Facebook, SoundCloud, or on Twitter at Colin Mahoney 15. And now, episode one of Lincoln Letters. To W.H. Wells, Springfield, Illinois, January 8, 1859. W.H. Wells, Esquire. My dear sir, yours of the third instant is just received. I regret to say that the joint discussions between Judge Douglas and myself have been published in no shape except in the first newspaper reports, and that I have no copy of them, or even of the single one at Freeport, which I could send you. By dint of great labor since the election, I have got together a nearly not quite complete single set to preserve myself. I shall preserve your address, and, if I can, in a reasonable time, lay my hand on an old paper containing the Freeport discussion, I will send it to you. All dallying with Douglas by Republicans, who are such at heart, is at the very least time and labor lost. And all such who so dally with him will yet bite their lips in vexation for their own folly. His policy, which rigorously excludes all idea of there being any wrong in slavery, does lead inevitably to the nationalization of the institution. And all who deprecate that consummation, and yet are seduced into his support, do but cut their own throats. True, Douglas has opposed the administration on one measure, and yet may on some other. But while he upholds the Dred Scott decision, declares that he cares not whether slavery be voted down or voted up, that it is simply a question of dollars and cents, and that the Almighty has drawn a line on one side of which labor must be performed by slaves. To support him or Buchanan is simply to reach the same goal by only slightly different roads. Very respectfully, to Elihu B. Washburn, Springfield, January 29, 1859. Honorable E. B. Washburn, My dear sir, I have just received your brother's speech sent me by yourself. I had read it before, and you will oblige me by presenting him with my respects, and telling him I doubly thank him for making it, first because the points are so just and well put, and next because it is so well timed. We need it from someone who can get the public attention just such a speech, just at this time. His objection to the Oregon Constitution because it excludes free Negroes 
is the only thing I wish he had omitted. Your friend as ever. To Lyman Trumbull. Springfield, February 3, 1859. Honorable Lyman Trumbull. My dear sir, Yours of the 29th is received. The article mentioned by you, prepared for the Chicago Journal, I have not seen, nor do I wish to see it, though I heard of it a month or more ago. Any effort to put enmity between you and me is as idle as the wind. I do not for a moment doubt that you, Judd, Cook, Palmer, and the Republicans generally, coming from the old Democratic ranks, were as sincerely anxious for my success in the late contest as I myself and the old Whig Republicans were. And I beg to assure you, beyond all possible cavil, that you can scarcely be more anxious to be sustained two years hence than I am that you shall be so sustained." I cannot conceive it possible for me to be a rival of yours, or to take sides against you in favor of any rival. Nor do I think there is much danger of the old Democratic and Whig elements of our party breaking into opposing factions. They certainly shall not, if I can prevent it. I do not perceive that there is any feeling here about Cuba, and so I think you can safely venture to act upon your own judgment upon any phase of it which may be presented. The House of Representatives passed an apportionment bill yesterday, slightly better for us than the present in the Senate districts, but perfectly outrageous in the House of Representative districts. It can be defeated without any revolutionary movement, unless the session be prolonged. Yours as ever. To Henry L. Pierce and others. Springfield, Illinois, April 6, 1859. Messrs. Henry L. Pierce and others. Gentlemen, your kind note inviting me to attend a festival in Boston on the 13th instant in honor of the birthday of Thomas Jefferson, was duly received. My engagements are such that I cannot attend. Bearing in mind that about seventy years ago, two great political parties were first formed in this country, that Thomas Jefferson was the head of one of them, and Boston the headquarters of the other. It is both curious and interesting that those supposed to descend politically from the party opposed to Jefferson should now be celebrating his birthday in their own original seat of empire, while those claiming political descent from him have nearly ceased to breathe his name everywhere. Remembering, too, that the Jefferson party were formed upon their supposed superior devotion to the personal rights of men, holding the rights of property to be secondary only and greatly inferior, 
and then assuming that the so-called democracy of today are the Jefferson and their opponents the anti-Jefferson parties, it will be equally interesting to note how completely the two have changed hands as to the principle upon which they were originally supposed to be divided. The democracy of today hold the liberty of one man to be absolutely nothing, when in conflict with another man's right of property. Republicans, on the contrary, are for both the man and the dollar, but in cases of conflict, the man before the dollar. I remember once being much amused at seeing two partially intoxicated men engage in a fight with their greatcoats on. Which fight, after a long and rather harmless contest, ended in each having fought himself out of his own coat and into that of the other. If the two leading parties of this day are really identical with the two in the days of Jefferson and Adams, they have performed about the same feat as the two drunken men. But, soberly, it is now no child's play to save the principles of Jefferson from total overthrow in this nation. One would start with great confidence that he could convince any sane child that the simpler propositions of Euclid are true. But, nevertheless, he would fail utterly with one who should deny the definitions and axioms. The principles of Jefferson are the definitions and axioms of free society, and yet they are denied and evaded with no small show of success. One dashingly calls them glittering generalities. Another bluntly calls them self-evident lies. And still others insidiously argue that they apply only to superior races. These expressions, differing in form, are identical in object and effect. The supplanting the principles of free government and restoring those of classification, caste, and legitimacy. They would delight a convocation of crowned heads, plotting against the people. They are the vanguard, the miners and sappers, of returning despotism. We must repulse them, or they will subjugate us. This is a world of compensations, and he who would be no slave must consent to have no slave. Those who deny freedom to others deserve it not for themselves, and under a just God cannot long retain it. All honor to Jefferson, to the man who, in the concrete pressure of a struggle for national independence by a single people, had the coolness, forecast, and capacity to introduce into a merely revolutionary document an abstract truth, applicable to all men and all times, and so to embalm it there, that today and in all coming days it shall be a rebuke and a stumbling block to the very harbingers of reappearing tyranny and oppression. 
your obedient servant. To Thomas J. Pickett, Springfield, April 16, 1859. T.J. Pickett, Esquire. My dear sir, yours of the 13th is just received. My engagements are such that I cannot, at any very early day, visit Rock Island to deliver a lecture or for any other object. As to the other matter you kindly mention, I must, in candor, say I do not think myself fit for the presidency. I certainly am flattered and gratified that some partial friends think of me in that connection. But I really think it is best for our cause that no concerted effort, such as you suggest, should be made. Let this be considered confidential. Yours very truly, to Salmon P. Chase, Springfield, Illinois, April 30th, 1859. Honorable S. P. Chase, Dear Sir, Reaching home yesterday, I found your kind note of the 14th, informing me that you have given Mr. Whitney the appointment he desired and also mentioning the present encouraging aspects of the Republican cause, and our Illinois canvass of last year. I thank you for the appointment. Allow me also to thank you as being one of the very few distinguished men whose sympathy we in Illinois did receive last year, of all those whose sympathy we thought we had reason to expect. Of course I would have preferred success, but, failing in that, I have no regrets for having rejected all advice to the contrary, and resolutely made the struggle. Had we thrown ourselves into the arms of Douglas, as re-electing him by our votes would have done, the Republican cause would have been annihilated in Illinois, and, as I think, demoralized and prostrated everywhere for years, if not forever. As it is, in the language of Benton, we are clean, and the Republican star gradually rises higher everywhere. Yours truly. To Mark W. Delahaye, Springfield, Illinois, May 14, 1859 M. W. Delahaye, Esquire My dear sir, I find it impossible for me to attend your Republican convention at Osawaton on the 18th. It would have afforded me much personal gratification to see your fine new country and to meet the good people who have cast their lot there, and still more, if I could thereby contribute anything to the Republican cause. You probably will adopt resolutions in the nature of a platform, and, as I think, the only danger will be the temptation to lower the Republican standard in order to gather recruits. In my judgment, such a step would be a serious mistake would open a gap through which more would pass out than pass in. And this would be the same, 
whether the letting down should be in deference to Douglasism or to the Southern opposition element. Either would surrender the object of the Republican organization, the preventing the spread and nationalization of slavery. This object surrendered, the organization would go to pieces. I do not mean by this that no Southern man must be placed upon our Republican national ticket for 1860. There are many men in the slave states for any one of whom I would cheerfully vote to be either president or vice president, provided he would enable me to do so with safety to the Republican cause, without lowering the Republican standard. This is the indispensable condition of a union with us. It is idle to think of any other. Any other would be as fruitless to the South as distasteful to the North, the whole ending in common defeat. Let a union be attempted on the basis of ignoring the slavery question and magnifying other questions which the people just now are caring nothing about, and it will result in gaining no single electoral vote in the South and losing every one in the North. Yours very truly, To Theodore Canisius, Springfield, May 17, 1859. Dr. Theodore Canisius. Dear Sir, Your note asking, in behalf of yourself and other German citizens, whether I am for or against the constitutional provision in regard to naturalized citizens, lately adopted by Massachusetts, and whether I am for or against a fusion of the Republicans and other opposition elements for the canvas of 1860, is received. Massachusetts is a sovereign and independent state, and it is no privilege of mine to scold her for what she does. Still, if from what she has done, an inference is sought to be drawn as to what I would do, I may, without impropriety, speak out. I say, then, that, as I understand the Massachusetts provision, I am against its adoption in Illinois, or in any other place where I have a right to oppose it. Understanding the spirit of our institutions to aim at the elevation of men, I am opposed to whatever tends to degrade them. I have some little notoriety for commiserating the oppressed condition of the Negro, and I should be strangely inconsistent if I could favor any project for curtailing the existing rights of white men, even though born in different lands and speaking different languages from myself. As to the matter of fusion, I am for it, if it can be had on Republican grounds, and I am not for it on any other terms. A fusion on any other terms would be as foolish as unprincipled. It would lose the whole North, while the common enemy would still carry the whole South. The question of men is a different one. There are good patriotic men and able statesmen in the South, whom I would cheerfully support 
if they would now place themselves on Republican ground. But I am against letting down the Republican standard a hair's breadth. I have written this hastily, but I believe it answers your question substantially. Yours truly. To Salmon P. Chase, Springfield, Illinois, June 9, 1859. Honorable S. P. Chase, Dear Sir, Please pardon the liberty I take in addressing you, as I now do. It appears by the papers that the late Republican State Convention of Ohio adopted a platform, of which the following is one plank, a repeal of the atrocious fugitive slave law. This is already damaging us here. I have no doubt that if that plank be even introduced into the next Republican National Convention, it will explode it. Once introduced, its supporters and its opponents will quarrel irreconcilably. The latter shall believe the U.S. Constitution declares that a fugitive slave shall be delivered up. And they look upon the above plank as dictated by the spirit which declares a fugitive slave shall not be delivered up. I enter upon no argument one way or the other, but I assure you the cause of republicanism is hopeless in Illinois, if it be in any way made responsible for that plank. I hope you can, and will, contribute something to relieve us from it. Your Obedient Servant To Salmon P. Chase, Springfield, Illinois, June 20, 1859 Honorable S. P. Chase My dear sir, yours of the thirteenth instant is received. You say you would be glad to have my views. Although I think Congress has constitutional authority to enact a fugitive slave law, I have never elaborated an opinion upon the subject. My view has been, and is, simply this. The U.S. Constitution says the fugitive slave shall be delivered up, but it does not expressly say who shall deliver him up. Whatever the Constitution says shall be done, and has omitted saying who shall do it, the government established by that constitution, ex v. termini, is vested with the power of doing, and Congress is, by the constitution, expressly empowered to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution all powers vested by the constitution in the government of the United States. This would be my view on a simple reading of the Constitution, and it is greatly strengthened by the historical fact that the Constitution was adopted, in great part, in order to get a government which could execute its own behests, in contradistinction to that under the Articles of Confederation, which depended, in many respects, upon the states for its execution and the other fact that one of the earliest Congresses, under the Constitution, did enact a fugitive slave law. But I did not write you on this subject 
with any view of discussing the constitutional question. My only object was to impress you with what I believe is true, that the introduction of a proposition for repeal of the fugitive slave law into the next Republican National Convention will explode the convention and the party. Having turned your attention to the point, I wish to do no more. Yours very truly,